some of you are thinking, why don't we just let the movie play and then... Uh, I wish I had a nice accent like that. Maybe, maybe you would like my sermons even more if I had a beautiful accent like that. Uh, you know, we have a good friend of the, of the Mennonite Brethren Church. His name is Bill Hogg who's Scottish background, and he's an evangelist. And when he comes and speaks, I just think this everything this guy says must be true because it just, it sounds true because his accent tells me it's true. And maybe that's just decades of me thinking that anything serious has to have a British or English accent of some kind attached to it. That's not the case this morning. You get me. But more than that, you get the word of God, the words of Jesus. We have this new series that we're starting into now as we head into this deep, darkest part of winter. How many of you were thinking, seriously think, I might just watch the live stream today and not actually go and try to start the car? I, I was thinking that this morning. It's cold out there. But we move in this season out of the Advent season where we talk about the Christ who comes to be with us, God with us, the child born in the manger. And we turn our, our attention now in this time following the Christmas season between now and the end of March when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to spend time looking at the life and teachings of this Jesus, this Messiah who comes. We've called this uh, next series of sermons between now and mid-February when the Lenten season starts. We've called it the Jesus Manifesto. It's based on Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you are very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount You've heard it many times, and some of you can probably quote the Beatitudes quite easily by heart, or some of the famous sayings from the Sermon on the Mount, like, turn the other cheek, things, like, things of that nature. But I've given it this title, the Jesus Manifesto, for a reason. For some of you, the word manifesto... Uh, Sounds familiar, but you're not quite sure what we mean by it. For others of you, you're like, I don't even really know what that word is supposed to be. Well, a manifesto is a statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, and views of the author. Okay, it's up there, but it's not back there for some reason. I was wondering to see if I was still on. Okay. It's a statement that declares the intentions, motives, and views of the author. It's often political in nature or social, as in what society looks like, or even artistic, how things ought to feel and to be. In this case, the manifesto we're talking about is spiritual and social and political all wrapped up in one. Sometimes manifestos are revolutionary. They turn things as they are on their heads and lay out something completely different. 
a manifesto may also lay out a plan of action for those who live by it. To help us understand what we mean by a manifesto, a declaration of intent, a declaration of the way things ought to be or will be, I thought I would give you a few examples of some other famous manifestos in our lifetimes and in our world today. During World War II, more than 50 million people were killed, either in battle or by war-related diseases or all of the other effects of that terrible, terrible conflagration. As a result of the war, and in particular because of the atrocities that were committed during the Second World War, the United Nations developed something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is the basic document that humanity, at least uh, the, the governments of our world together, have put together that frames what human rights mean for everyone on this planet. It's a manifesto of how we ought to treat other human beings. Another manifesto that you may not have thought of as a manifesto is something called The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. It's a book that he wrote in which he gives a scientific manifesto about what it means to be human. Darwin proposes that the diversity of life on the planet rises from evolution, as if they were branches on a tree. And it shows us that the right kind of manifesto can change the way that people see themselves and the world around them. I'm not saying you have to agree or disagree. I'm using this as an example. Another famous manifesto is the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in 1848. It represents a core ideology of a political system that we call socialism. And it's recognized as being one of the most influential political documents ever written. And through its adoption as the communist doctrine of Russia and other countries around the world, it changed the political landscape and fate of millions of people. Sometimes a manifesto has words and phrases in it that are immediately recognizable by people. I'm going to say a phrase to you, and let's see if you know which manifesto this comes from. We hold these truths to be self-evident. The U.S. Declaration of Independence is a manifesto for a political way of being free from a monarchy. I have a dream is a spiritual manifesto about what it means to be a human being in the context of the post-war United States in the era of civil rights movements. These are manifestos. These are declarations of the way things ought to be, or the way the things will be, the intentions and views of the author. This is what we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. This is the manifesto, the declaration of Jesus 
in which he describes what the kingdom of God is like. What it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. What it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. What the effect of the kingdom of God will have on the world around it. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus lays out his vision for the kingdom, the life of the kingdom citizens, their character, their morals and ethics, their spiritual practices, their ways of thinking. And in the conclusion of this manifesto, Jesus invites all to consider. Maybe that's a little soft. Jesus says that we must decide which way we will choose. Will you choose the ways of the kingdom or will you choose your own path? As we look at these two chap- three chapters of scripture found in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that there are a number of themes within this manifesto of Jesus. The first section we call the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, in which Jesus describes the nature of the kingdom and the people within it and the character by which they are known and understood to be a part of that kingdom. In Matthew 5, 17 to 48, we read about the ethics and moral vision of the kingdom. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus talks about the inward life of the citizens of the kingdom. And then going on into Matthew 6, 19, through chapter 7, verse 12, he talks about the outward life of these kingdom citizens. And finally, in chapter 7, verses 13 to 29, he uses two images in which he brings this choice forward. You have heard what the kingdom is like. You have heard what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom. And now, choose which way you will go. Will you choose to be a part of this kingdom? To live in the ways that are described in this manifesto? Or will you turn your back and go your own way? This morning, we are looking at the first section of this text of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 something which I've called this morning the ways of the kingdom. In a broad sense, this describes the heart of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God as Jesus understands it. It's a counter-cultural way of being. The kingdom has a counter-cultural character. We know these Beatitudes, sometimes so, fam- so familiarly, wow, how do you say that word? We are so familiar with these Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, that we don't even think about it anymore. We heard it read this morning through the video that we had, and I want to go through these Beatitudes briefly, but without using those words that we're so used to. I want you to hear again as Jesus speaks and declares his vision for what it means to be 
part of this kingdom of God that he is establishing. Those who recognize their need for God will be blessed and will experience God's presence in their lives. This is counter to what the world around us looks like for those who normally rely on themselves and on their strength and on their power that they have. Blessed are those who know their own failures because they will be lifted up and redeemed and restored. Unlike those in the world who build up walls so they cannot be affected by others and live with a false self projected to the world, seemingly unaffected, isolated, Blessed are those who know their weakness. For they will receive blessings of all kinds, material and relationships and spiritual. Unlike the world around us which pushes to the front and puts themselves first and pushes others behind them to take the scraps. Blessed are those who know their own foolishness and brokenness. For in the kingdom they become wise and mature and whole again. Unlike the world around us, which has a concern only for comfort and material gain. Blessed are those who forgive and are charitable and kind to others, they in turn will be forgiven and blessed and treated with kindness. Unlike the world around us, which is demanding and condemning and points out the faults of all other than themselves, blessed are those whose intentions and motives are pure because they will be honored and recognized for their heart. Unlike the world around us that gets ahead by manipulating, being only as honest as I need to be in the moment and lacking integrity in the day-to-day things of life. Blessed are those who embrace the values of the kingdom and its king because they will be named as those who belong, who are citizens and children of this king of peace. Unlike the world around us, in which we pick fights and provoke others to confrontation or simply turn away from the injustices that we see all around us. Blessed are those who are willing to suffer, to do what is right even when it's hard, 
and to do it because of the one whom they follow and what they understand to be true and right, and they will receive their reward. Whether it is in this life or in the next, all things will be made right, and they will receive their reward. Unlike the world, which so often does whatever it takes to get by in this moment, to get just from here to there, regardless of the means that is used, to stand for nothing in particular other than whatever I feel like I need right now. Does that sound different than what you remember? This is Jesus describing the character of the kingdom of God and the character of those who inhabit the kingdom of God. Do you recognize yourselves in those descriptions? Either in the description of the blessed ones or in the culture around us, the culture in which we are immersed, which turns its back on the kingdom of God and goes its own way. I read an interesting blog this week, a a faith blog. It was talking about uh, something that has provoked them and caused them to be stretched and and think about their own faith. And they called that blog post that they had made, they said, the best question I've ever been asked. And it described a conversation that this author had had with someone as they were traveling on an airplane from one place to another. They, and this, the author is a Christian, and they were seated next to someone who was a young Hindu man. And they were talking about different aspects of their faith and religion, and she said, and then this young man asked me a question that has never left my heart. The best question I've ever been asked. He said... What is something that you don't like about your faith? What is something that you don't like about your faith? She said, at first I thought maybe he was like talking about, you know, well, my denomination does this or there's this particular practice, which is, but no, as, as they talk more, she realized that the question is, what is something about the teachings and fundamental principles of the faith that you follow that is, that you, that just is uncomfortable and difficult and you really wish it wasn't there? She takes that question and she explores what it meant for her as that question just wouldn't leave her mind. She said, because in the moment I thought, well, no, I love my faith. I love my Jesus. I love the scriptures. What do you mean, what don't I like? But as she considered, thought about it more and more, became clear You know, there are things that Jesus says. There are things that Jesus does that I just wish weren't there. They're hard. They push me in ways that I wish it didn't. There are pressure points and discomforting 
things. And in her blog, and I'm ripping this straight out of her blog and I'm bringing it to us because I think it was the voice of God to me and for you, was this challenge. That is, if you have a faith in which you are perfectly content, in which there is nothing that doesn't rub you in a way that causes pressure and discomfort, you are either not paying attention at all to the faith that you say that you follow, the kingdom that you say that you are a part of, or you have created an idol for yourself, a God fashioned by your own hands. Because it is only an idol that we fashion with our own hands that we love exactly the way it is. Because it reflects exactly what we want and think it ought to be. This week, I challenge you to read this text over and over and over again. And read this manifesto that we find here in the nature and character of a countercultural people, a countercultural kingdom, and what it means to be a part of it. Pay attention to what the Spirit is nudging you, what He's saying to you, and listen for how God is calling you into a different way of living. The transformation that comes when we live under the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. This text ends with salt and light. Sometimes we focus on the teaching of salt and light as as this is what you need to do as a follower of Jesus. You need to be salt. You need to be light. But I think in the way that it connects with this manifesto, this declaration, it says, if you live this way, you cannot help but be salt and be light. If you are in a stream and a current and you turn and you try to go against that current, the waves and the water creates eddies and ripples around your legs as you try to move against the current. And the stronger the current, or the deeper the waters, the more the waves pile up. If we walk and live in this countercultural way, we will be noticed. It will make a difference. The kingdom way causes waves in our culture in our community, and in our daily lives and relationships. The question we are asked is, do we belong to this kingdom? Do we live in the way that Jesus is describing as a kingdom life, as kingdom people under his lordship, serving God with our whole lives? I'm excited about exploring this text in Matthew 5 through 7 in which this vision of the kingdom of God is laid out. And as we consider together what it looks like for us individually and for us as a people gathered in this place to live in the kingdom of God.
This morning we are going to celebrate the inauguration of this kingdom that Jesus comes to establish. As he welcomes people into the kingdom, we have these signs and symbols that we proclaim that remind us of this reality. We have the bread and the cup. And this morning, we will together remember and declare, I belong to Jesus. I am a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And I will live in this way. And I will submit my life to the true life, an eternal life with Christ. Thank you.